hardly opened his mouth until we passed Clapham Junction. It's a very cheery thing to come into London by any of these lines which run high and allow you to look down upon the houses like this. I thought he was joking, for the view was sordid enough, but soon he explained himself. Look at those big isolated clumps of building rising up above the slates, like brick islands in a lead-coloured sea. The board schools. Lighthouses, my boy. Beacons of the future, capsules with hundreds of bright little seeds in each, out of which will spring the wise, better England of the future. So that was, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle from um, Sherlock Holmes' story, The Naval Treaty, published in 1893. And you may well have guessed that we've decided, in the light of the rack scandal that's ongoing, to focus on school buildings for the next couple of episodes. And in our first episode, we're going to have a look at the different school buildings of the past. And particularly, we're going to focus on board schools. So what were the board schools, Daisy? It's a good question. So um, a couple of weeks ago, we had an episode on the 1870 Education Act. And the board schools essentially spring from that act. So you might remember the, the 1870 Education Act. It's the first really major piece of education legislation in England. It, <clears throat> um, it allows for the establishment of these local school boards. And these local school boards are quite an innovation in English government. Uh, they've got tax raising powers, which is quite a big deal. <laughs> um, they're, and they're allowed to raise taxes for the construction of new schools if there's a shortfall in their area. And the London School Board is the biggest of all the school boards, the biggest and the most famous. And what is so impressive about it is they really, really get moving. So this 1870 Act, obviously, is passed in 1870. And the first elections for the London School Board are held in November 1870. So uh, kind of as soon as this act is passed, things get going, school boards got elected up and down the country and the London School Board is the absolute um, pioneer. I was looking at the, the composition of that school board and building on our last episode that there's a couple of women who, who stand and get elected to the school board. So there's Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and also Emily Davies, who we were talking about last time, who founded Girton College. And it's not just women. It's incredible the, the, the number of famous and prominent people it attracts. Uh, it really is astonishing. Um, you, know, you think it's it's local government we're talking about here. Um, and the Times, on the morning of the election to the London School Board, the Times writes uh, that the great event of today for this country will be the election of the first London School Board. No equally powerful body will exist in England outside Parliament if power be measured by influence for good or evil over masses of human beings. Uh, so that is pretty astonishing. You know, that is the national paper, the Times... <laughs> saying that the election to a local school board is the biggest deal outside parliament and as i said it's it's a very 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 innovative in terms of its elections it's there's actually a form of proportional representation used a uh, kind of quite a, a basic form women as you say are allowed to stand which is a huge deal it's the first time women can stand for for election and um uh you have a couple of working men i think are elected as as, as well so and it's got this tax raising power which is a big deal um, and if you look at the people who are elected, as you say, you've got a couple of you know a couple of very prominent women, Elizabeth Garrett, who's first woman to become a doctor in England, you know, very famous at, at the time. But even more remarkably, some of the men, the chairman who's elected is Lord Lawrence, 
who has just returned from being Viceroy of India. And Viceroy of India, I mean, that's not a post you get elected to. Um, that's, uh, that's, you know, this, this hugely, um, hugely really autocratic role. He comes back from that and he chairs the London School Board. Another couple of big names, W.H. Smith of W.H. Smith fame. He's also an MP and he decides to, to run for election. He's elected. Uh, the scientist, Thomas Huxley. There's a philanthropist, Samuel Morley, who's an incre- incredibly wealthy man. There's lots of young, ambitious politicians who go on to make names for themselves. And I was just trying to put this into a modern context. This is the equivalent now, maybe, of, I don't know, something like Theresa May, Richard Branson, Richard Dawkins, all deciding that they maybe want to get elected to Lambeth Local Council and focus on and get elected to the Education Committee. It's not not that different from that. (laughs) Um, So it's a sign, I guess, of, of how much this... Education Act really has captured the imagination of the country that so many prominent people want to stand for election. And so they have the right to raise taxes um, in order to provide schools where there's a lack of them. And presumably that's what they set about doing. Yes. And as I say, they don't mess around. It is up to the school board to decide. So We said in the 1870 episode that the 1870 Act doesn't actually make education compulsory in England. But this school board decide we don't care about that. They pass a bylaw in 1871 and they say, well, actually in London, education is going to be compulsory. Um, so they kind of unilaterally decide that. They get going very quickly on school building. So the big problem is that there's a lot of areas of London, of England, particularly the urban areas, there's just not enough schools. And the point of these school boards is if there's a lack of provision, if there's a lack of building in your area, you're allowed to set a local tax and use that tax to build. They get going on that straight away. Um, so they almost immediately, you know, one of the first things they do is to employ an architect, chief architect, whose job is going to be to build all of these schools that are needed. So, yeah, there's, there's a huge, huge shortfall of, of school places in London. Uh, you know, the big cities are where the real, the real shortfalls are. So they just absolutely want to get cracking, particularly want to build in the East End, you know, the poorest part of London. And the, the first school I think they build is, is in Whitechapel. So they appoint a single architect who's going to be responsible for, for multiple buildings. How many buildings are we talking about, roughly? The school board in the end is around for about 30 years. And within the first, yeah, within that 30 years, they're estimated to build about 400 primary schools, 400 elementary schools. And that's pretty significant. So I just put into context, we're doing this episode because there's all this uh, fuss about all these schools now that have to shut because they haven't been refurbished, that they've got this crumbly concrete, so they might collapse and some really interesting stats came out in the media discussion of it. Basically, um, the, 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 one of the stats that came out was that the Treasury now have funded for the refurbishment of 50 schools a year. So when you consider that in the 1870s, the London School Board, in 30 years, they're building from scratch 400 schools. I think that really you know, shows how quickly they're moving. OK, they, they really get going. This is just in London and it's, in a, it's, it's a London that's smaller than the London we have today. Uh, you know, it's not London in those days is pretty much what we would call inner London today. So to get 400 schools built in that area in 30, 30 odd years is is very impressive. And even just within the first the first 20 years, they're responsible for educating about 350,000 students. So, yeah, enormously, uh, in, in, an enormous impact. And I think that Sherlock Holmes quote you opened with, it wasn't just an enormous impact in terms of the numbers they're educating, but the impact the physical impact on the city you you would see these you would know 
they were in existence. I think a lot of our listeners will actually know one of these schools and be familiar with what they look like. I've actually got one about 300 metres from where I'm sitting recording right now. It's, it's a very distinctive yellow and red brick building. It's got two different entrances, one with um, stone carved above the top of the entrance, which says boys. And then the other entrance is for girls and infants. And it's a really, really striking building. So am I right? Is is that what most of these schools look like if they were sort of built to a template? You're absolutely right. And so I would say everyone who lives in London would recognise it, one, if they saw one, because there's plenty left. And not just in London, I would actually say that the this architect, Robson, had a huge impact uh, nationally, uh, particularly in urban, urban sites. So... Even if you're not in London, I think you'll, you'll, you'll know the look and you'll probably know a school like that near you. And just to give some numbers, in 2006, they did a bit of a survey of, of primaries in England. There's about 16,000, 17,000 primary schools in England. And in 2006, they said about 3,500 probably date from this era. Uh, and so if they're not uh, actually of this type, would be very similar. So I think you've described it really well. Um, I would say I'm not an architect. You know, if I was going to describe how they look... <laughs> Uh, they're sort of three or four story brick buildings. They're quite imposing. <laughs> uh, totally, yeah, yeah, totally made of brick. <laughs> then often surrounded by a play- playground and then a brick perimeter wall. And then often you'll still see this, even though those entrances aren't used. It's what you said. They've got the infants, the girls, the boys, so the separate entrances. And often that's carved into the brickwork or the stonework. So it's not like you can re- relabel it <laughs> when that changes. They maybe do look a bit like a Victorian prison, but a really nice prison. So uh, you talked about one the year. As I say, I think most people will probably sort of know one. Other ones people might know. There's one in Millbank near 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 Westminster. There's there's one there. Uh, I think a famous one, Primrose Hill. I think that might even be listed. Um, so, yeah, I think wherever you are in England, you'll probably kind of recognise these. And inside, they're quite distinctive inside too. They won't have corridors. So this is the thing that Robson, the architect, we'll talk about him in a moment, that he he wrote about and was sort of quite keen on. He thought corridors were dead space. So a lot of them have a central assembly hall and the classrooms just peel directly off the hall. And again, I'm pretty sure if you're, you know, if you've visited a school in England, you're, that you'll be kind of familiar with, with, with that, that structure. And I said they've got three or four floors. Often typically how they'd be structured would be the infants would be on the ground floor, the girls on the first floor, the boys on the second floor. So they were deliberately built to, to be like that as well. Um, and I've given you my, my kind of non-architectural uh, vision of what they look like. But the, the technical sort of aspect to them, they were known as Queen Anne Revival. And this was a popular uh, a popular style at the time. Um, so it was pretty, pretty fashionable. Um, and as I say, this guy Robson probably pioneers that style and it gets adopted in lots of schools up and down the country. And so tell us a bit more about Robson. What kind of figure was he? Yeah, so he's another one probably of these hardworking Victorians. Um, he's appointed he's appointed by this London School Board as the chief architect, but he's not from London, so that's interesting. He's a little bit of a surprise choice because of that. He's from the north, so he's born in Durham. Um, as a young man, he works on the restoration of Durham's Cathedral Tower. Uh, he then becomes architect to the city of Liverpool. He does quite a bit of travelling, so he travels to the continent. He looks at lots of buildings there. He's quite influenced by a lot of that architecture. Um, and he's appointed by the London School Board as chief architect in 1871. So again, they're only set up in 1870. By 1871, they're appointing a chief architect. And we also know a lot about what he thought about education because in 1874, he wrote a book called School Architecture. 
And that has lots of his ideas in it, lots of his thoughts about how he should build school, and also a lot of really interesting information about his tours on the continent and what he learned from there, and particularly sort of Germany, Switzerland, um, the, the, the Netherlands, uh, you know, all the things he learned there about how schools are, are designed. What was his particular inspiration from what was going on in, in Germany and uh, the Low Countries? I think partly it's we've, we've, we've spoken before on this podcast about how everyone kind of feels influenced by Germany, Germany at this time. And it's particularly it's that, um, you know, it's the, the war, I say Germany and Prussia, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the war with France in 1870. He even mentions that in the book. It feels like you can't read about education in the 1870s without someone saying, you know, the German the Prussians, the Prussians beating the French in 1870. <laughs> We've got to be more like them. <laughs> um, so everyone's a little bit influenced by the the, the Germans at this point, and I suppose they seem like the sort of rising rising power as well. So they attract a lot of attention. Um, but he, he's not sort of saying we've got to slavishly follow them. And actually, one of the points he makes in his book is that the wage of a schoolmaster in Germany is lower than the wage of a schoolmaster in in England, quite significantly lower. And actually, that means that in Germany you can have it. It's easier to have smaller class sizes. So he talks a lot about class sizes. One of the really striking things about his book, um, and again, you know, I want to make those comparisons with today, is he's an architect, but he's really paying attention to the nature of schools and what schools are like. And he's really paying attention to education in a way that I would personally say uh, when I was teaching, <laughs> I didn't necessarily feel that um, uh, all of the architects paid that much close attention to the nature of education. That's very much a negative stereotype we have with architects today, right? That, that, that it's all a big ego and that they don't really think about the practicalities of the buildings that they construct or what actually is going to go on inside them. It's all about making a very dramatic design. Right. So you don't want to sort of reinforce lazy stereotypes, <laughs> do you? But certainly I would say when I started teaching, um, I was teaching at the era where there was a lot of school, new school building going on. And, and I taught in a few build, a few a few schools that had had the new buildings, and yeah, you you did see what you just said. You saw examples of that. You saw examples of where yeah, you felt things had been built to satisfy the the architect's ego, <laughs> uh, rather than what the, the the pupils and the teachers needed. Um, and interestingly, in in his book, uh, Robson, he he kind of sort of talks about this. And he says, he says, the problem we've had in the past, he said, in the past, there's been no money <laughs> and everything's had to go through the church. And he talks about the problems that's caused. And of course, that's caused problems because if you haven't got any money, what, what can you do? When the clergymen are building churches, actually, because clergymen are involved with teaching, they do know a little bit about what it takes to teach. They do know a little bit about what's necessary, but they haven't got any money. And the, the, the problem that causes is that in order to get the money, in order to get the money to build buildings, what they end up doing, and I, you know, I hadn't sort of realised this, but it makes sense when he talks about it. What they end up doing is they build on the cheap, but also they build multi-purpose buildings that are suitable, in his words, for lectures, concerts, tea meetings and the like. So they're not really built with schools in mind. They're built to do lots of different things so they can make money in other ways or be useful in other ways. And they're not really, first and foremost, schoolhouses. So he says the great thing about the 1870 Act is it's 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 got this rate you know, tax raising powers. You've got the money. You can now build a school that is a school. So that's really important. But then he says, but the risk now he says is that you've got these school boards, and actually there's a lot of people on these school boards who are not at least the clergymen knew about teaching. A lot of the people on these school boards they don't know about teaching. They don't know about education, and so they can mess things up. And he says uh, they're able, if they like, to squander large sums of money over their own theories of school planning, however much these may be in opposition to the opinion of the best authorities. Uh, and he goes on to say, it, it will be thus be seen that our object is not to start newfangled ideas, which might appear directed to revolutionise the system in use in this country. 
he, so he's not a revolutionary. He's not someone who wants to just come up, as I said, with his own newfangled ideas. He is really immersed in the details of how education is working at that moment in England and how aspects of the assessment system govern how many kids are in a classroom and how, how much space you're going to need. And he wants to make schools work for for that system. Uh, so, yeah, and, and not only that, he's also really immersed in details of things like sanitation, ventilation, heating, light, all these kinds of things. So it does feel to me <laughs> that it's a little bit different from perhaps some of the, 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 the buildings you, you get today, where people perhaps are trying to be newfangled revolutionaries. That is really interesting. I mean, a lot of these Victorian buildings actually came in for praise during COVID because the way that their windows were constructed and the high ceilings meant that they were much uh, better suited to be well ventilated. He talks so much about cubic airspace and ventilation. It is a huge preoccupation of his. And he criticises a lot of the pre-existing private schools. I'm not talking about the great public schools here, but private schools that are sort of run out of back room. And he talks about about how badly ventilated they are, about how there's too many too many bodies crammed into a small space. You also you get the impression it doesn't sort of mention it, but obviously the 19th century there's a big big issue about sewers and cholera and hygiene. You you know he's he's really you can get the get the impression he's really thinking about those things. Um, and so fascinating to think, yeah, uh, you know, fast forward, um, what are we, you know, 150 years with covid and actually everyone turned around and went yeah maybe we should have uh we should be thinking about cubic airspace we should be thinking about ventilation um and these schools as you say you know served us served us quite well in that time as well and that's interesting what you're saying about the contrast between the sort of schools he's building and thinking about these sort of small private schools that are being run out of people's houses people's back rooms again last time we were talking about Frances Mary Bass who sets up North London Collegiate School out of her house um in Camden so again lots of sort of small pokey rooms perhaps difficult to to have large numbers of children together in one space and then that sort of contrasts with the great public schools, which are often teaching all of their pupils together in one great vast hall. So even the schools, uh, the medieval schools that are purpose built, like Eton and Winchester, the schoolroom is just a single room, a single big open space. And there's no real sense of um, dividing the pupils up into different smaller subsets that would be taught in their own space. Right, because that even for public schools would have been expensive. The, and, and this is the great challenge of schooling right up to today, isn't it? It's that probably in an ideal world, you would have maybe just a handful of students being taught by one adult, but that's still prohibitively expensive. And um, that's why when people talk about technology and the uh, the power of technology, a lot of the time, one of the things they talk about is, is there a way you could get to sort of you know one-to-one personal tuition <laughs> and again Robson in his book talks about this a lot and I think any school building you're thinking about this a lot how big do your classrooms need to be how many classrooms do you need how big should the big spaces be as I say what Robson comes up with and he talks a lot about how in Germany it's sort of slightly different but he comes up with a little bit of a hybrid in that you're going to have this central schoolroom where all the students can fit or at least all the girls or boys or infants on their right floor and then the classrooms will peel off from that so you'll kind of get the best of both worlds if you need to get all the students together you can but then they can go off into smaller classes and he does say ideally what you want is enough teachers such that you can teach each year group or each standard as it's it's known then they have these standards of that students should be meeting that roughly correspond to sort of each year group it would be great if you can have a class for each standard 
Um, and maybe those classes, you know, they would vary in size, but you would, you would, that would be the, the dream you'd want. Whereas, as you say, a lot of the original public schools, they are beginning with just enormous schoolrooms where everyone's being taught in one room, often with that kind of pupil teacher system or monitorial system where, yeah, you've got a couple hundred kids and you've got uh, one one adult teacher and then pupil monitors who have to sort of reteach everything to to the students. And, you know, there's varying effectiveness with that. So, yeah, there's there's pedagogical kind of innovations going on here as well. The idea of everybody having a having a having a classroom and having enough teachers for that. And what were the pedagogical impacts more generally of the of these board schools? As I said, I think one is students having the the different different classes for each year group or different classes for each standard. That feels pretty obvious now, but it, it isn't then. I think the other thing he very much is uh, trying to tie this in with the existing system. And as I say, the existing system is a system that has these sort of six standards that have been set out in the revised code of 1862. He, he talks about that and that, that persists up to 1897. This is a code, we should talk about it, give it an episode of its own, because it's basically an early form of payment, performance-based pay, that schools will only get paid if they meet, uh, if inspectors come around and assess their students and the students meet certain standards. He is very much engaging with that and wants to set up schools that fit that. And that's how he's dividing up, you know, deciding how many classrooms there should be. In terms of then, you know, are they successful? Is this pedagogy, you know, do, do they do they succeed? It's hard to know. <laughs> we talked a, a lot at length in the exams episodes we did about the challenges of, uh, you know, measuring educational attainment in the past. I will say, though, that culturally, if you read sort of literature from this time or just popular literature or the newspapers from this era, the board school boy in particular becomes a bit of a a bit of a stereotype. I think famously Virginia Woolf has a go at James Joyce and says, oh, he's just like this clever board school boy. It, you know, he repeats things cleverly, but doesn't really have any understanding. So the idea of the clever, maybe slightly sarky, quick witted board school boy becomes a bit of a stereotype. But what's interesting is the stereotype is that the board school boy is clever. Like, no one's going around saying James Joyce is an idiot, are they? Right. So the stereotype is not that the board school boy is 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 is, is stupid and the school isn't working. <laughs> so I find that quite interesting. That um, it's yeah, it's not it's, it's no hard data, but it's it's quite interesting, kind of anecdotally, the way that these schools do become a part of the culture um, and people do start talking about them. Um, yeah, and perhaps there's an element of snobbery there. But it's an element of snobbery that's sort of underlaid with a little bit of um, respect, you might argue. And so you hinted at the fact that these boards were very active for these 30 years, got 400 schools built in London. What happens after that 30 year period? What happens to the school boards? So there's another big National Education Act in 1902 and the school boards are abolished. You know, why does that happen if they're so successful, they do so much? I mean, partly it's the outside London. Some of them are tiny, kind of too many of them. They're seen as a bit expensive, you know, all this stuff doesn't come cheap. Maybe a, like an extra, they become seen as a bit bureaucratic, like it's just an extra layer of, of, of bureaucracy. So they're abolished in 1902 and they are replaced by local education authorities. So in a sense with London, it, the, the, the power just sort of shifts to another London body. So yeah, that kind of heyday of them, it probably is 1870 to, to 1904, I think it is when the London one is eventually abolished. And then after that, you get a bit of a focus as well. The 1902 Act, I think, brings in a little bit more of a focus on secondary schools. So you get a bit of a focus uh, on that. Um, you know, I think there's still some 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 building going on. There's and then you've got this big sort of trend running throughout English education. What we talked about is this this tension between local and national funding. 
And so, as I say, this early stage, you've got the local funding being used to, to raise the money and build the buildings. By the time you end up where we end up now in the modern era is it's all uh, capital funding for schools is, is, is all national. Um, so even for these academy schools nowadays, which are kind of free from local authority control, they go to the government for their capital funding. And actually, that's kind of part of the issue that we're in today, that central government's respond, responsible for all of this. And what happens with school building in the 20th century? We'll talk about this probably a bit more in another episode, but I think there's not much funding. So funding's pretty sparse. I was saying the sort of the inter- interwar years, maybe a bit more of a focus on the, on the secondary schools. Obviously, then the big impact you have is then the, the war <laughs> and that destroys a lot of schools. So then you've got this huge impetus post-war that you've got to build. And you've got to build quickly. And that's not just true of schools. It's true of a lot of buildings. And then I think you could argue, does the building quickly always lead to quality? And it's building partly to replace buildings that have been destroyed in the bombing, but also because you've got that boomer, you know, the baby boom, those boomers that we now know are, are, are coming through and you need more school places for them. So what you end up with, I think prefabs are first used in the 30s to build schools, but you end up with a lot of prefab buildings post-war. And you also end up, I think in the 50s is when this RAAC, rack concrete starts being used. So this is the concrete that's uh, currently crumbling and causing all kinds of problems. So I guess a lot of these sort of quick building methods are being used because there's, there's time pressures. People need to get things built quickly because, as you say, you've had a lot of lot of destruction done in the war. Uh, yeah, a lot of destruction in the war and a, a baby boom as well. The destruction that was really interesting. I've heard two recently. I've heard two kind of almost competing theories about this. There's one, which is the, the, the V2 bombs. So the V2 bombs in London are, are towards the end of the war. Uh, and it's 44, 45. Uh, they're like, you know, they're, they're these early versions of piloted bombs. They're incredibly frightening. You read anything about Lon- Londoners in those days, they're, they're really sort of terrified by them. And they do a hell of a lot of damage right at the end of the war. And I think there's some statistics that have been shown to say, you know, just that, that last year of V2 damage in London, but also, you know, other parts of the country you can probably it probably still you know contributes a bit to the housing crisis we have today right um that it's such a lot of destruction of houses um and of 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 urban sort of residential areas um in such a short space of time that causes huge problems the flip side i've heard recently the economist did a fascinating article where they said actually some of the areas that got bombed by the v2 um they built back with greater density than other areas and actually that's contributed to sort of greater wealth and prosperity. So it's two sort of interesting takes on, on like what the impact the war has. I think the impact on schools, as I say, probably isn't great that there's, as I say, a rush to build. And maybe some of those buildings are not built for the long term. But as I say, what is really striking about 1870 is there's an enormous rush to build then. But the building, look, you can argue about how high quality it is. But for me, the fact that so many of them are still standing 150 years later that sure they're not perfect you know I've, I've been in a lot of them the stairs are quite steep they're not very accessible <laughs> you know they had to do a lot with outside toilets bringing them inside blah 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 blah. so i'm not saying they're perfect but they're still standing and the concrete you know it's not like the concrete's collapsing and they're killing people <laughs> so there's clearly a lot of good things about these buildings and they were built at speed almost kind of in an emergency i suppose again the flip side if, if people were going to sort of critique critique this you don't have the same health and safety rules in the 1870s as you do in the 20th century. So I don't know how many people died building all these board schools, but I'm going to gamble and guess that the people who died or got injured building them, it's a greater number than were done with buildings in the 20th century. So, you, you know, you have to take that into account as well. 
but certainly for speed of building and quality of building they 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 stack up pretty well I guess the other thing I would say in defence of the the post-war building boom is that they really were on a shoestring budget in the way that um, the the Victorian schools weren't. Yeah, and and that is interesting because obviously we're we're a wealthier country in the 1950s than in the 1870s. But as you say, there's a lot of pressures on budgets. There's a lot of other things people want to do. There's an NHS. I think what is also interesting is this local national funding issue. Now and again on Twitter, you'll see um, you'll see uh, people posting videos of American high schools. So I'm going to do a, a huge jump now. We're jumping from you know 1870s Victorian buildings to uh, 20th century American high schools. I always remember as a kid, you know, these 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 TV shows that were set in American high schools, which were very trendy. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, yeah, all of these ones from the nights. Dawson's Creek. Do you remember that? You know, and they had these schools that were enormous and 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 huge and and had like you know they were like university campuses and they seemed you know really quite quite big and palatial compared with what you've got in in england and then i was always really surprised that they were just almost like neighborhood schools and so the issue is in the in the us much more so than here there's a much greater element of funding schools with local property taxes and even the capital funding coming from local property taxes and what that means is is that wealthy areas of the US will have quite well funded, quite you know, often quite palatial um school buildings. Even their 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 you know, their 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 state schools will be quite well funded. I think what's interesting in the UK, because everything comes from central government, it's really striking how even quite wealthy areas of the UK often can have quite run down state school buildings. Um and, and again I think you're seeing part of that with this concrete issue. Um, and the schools that are the school buildings that are very well funded in the UK are obviously the, the public school buildings, um, which I think we'll, we'll talk a bit more about um, in, a, in another episode. So I think this is the trade off with local and national funding for, for not just for schools, but for anything is that when things are locally funded, often people maybe are willing to spend a little bit more tax because they can see the impact that they're getting. But the flip side, then you can get big inequalities. And I think you probably see that in the in the US. I suppose what, you know, if you wanted to be negative about the UK, you'd say everywhere's got, <laughs> it's very hard to get funding for any school anywhere for the capital build um, and the capital expenses. And that's why we're in the situation kind of we are, we are today. That 1870 Act it is locally funded. The schools are not cheap. I think, I say they're not cheap. I think they're, for the time they're expensive, but they're still probably compared to, to later buildings. Um, you know, again, because they have this model and you've got Robson overseeing it, I wouldn't say they're extortionate, but probably for the time where there's limited public spending on 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 a lot of public goods, they are probably seen as as being quite quite expensive. I mean, brick is one of the cheaper materials there. It's not like they're making them out of stone. He talks a lot about brick. He talks about why brick's so brilliant, uh, Robson, um, and why it's in keeping with the uh, it's in keeping with it's in keeping with British history. You know, it's easily available. He, t- he talks about why it's so great, but it's also a way that um, you can still. You can still do modern things and express yourself with it. You don't have to be slavishly copying the past. So he talks about that as well, yeah. The other thing I wanted to say in, in defence of the post-war building boom, being a sort of secret fan of brutalist architecture, is that, you know, there was something quite utopian about it. And in using new building materials, the architects were not necessarily trying to be short-termist you know they they, they were just being creative with what was available to them and wanting to you know experiment and perhaps being maybe a little naively utopian in their designs 
I think the whole issue of post-war utopianism, whether building, education, whatever, would be we should have an episode on it. And I think we are going to do an episode on the Butler Act of 1944. And the whole of Britain then, the, the great phrase then is the New Jerusalem. We're going to build the New, New Jerusalem. Um, and it is a fascinating question as to what extent in any aspect of British life did we build that New Jerusalem. Um, my take would be on the architecture, we didn't. Um, you, as you've just admitted, are a secret fan of brutalist architecture. Lizzie, you've got to live with that. So you're cross to bear. Um, <laughs> um, so, look, you know, they would, it will divide opinion. Um, you know, my take is you would have liked some of these post-war buildings to have endured for a little longer. I know they were under pressure. Um, and perhaps there's some other aspects of that immediate post-war world you'd have liked to have endured a little longer. There are other aspects which have endured and, you know, have captured the public imagination, like the NHS. Uh, you know, that's part of that. And that, that still has an enormous amount of public affection. I wondered whether you might mention Pimlico, where you worked. Yeah, I, wor- I worked at Pimlico. So it was a famous uh, a sort of brutalist one, which then got a, a rebuild under building schools for the future. Because, you know, lots of lots of aspects of it you know, probably weren't working out. Um, and it got a, got a rebuild um, just before I started teaching. I think in I got the rebuild in about 2010 or so, 20, 2009. So you do have these famous examples of landmark uh, brutalist schools or post-war schools that, that then, as I say, don't don't kind of in, endure or last as long. Um, building schools for the future itself had its own issues. So this was the big new labour scheme to rebuild the entire school estate. You know, if you want to read more about that, there's a fantastic article in The Guardian about um, one of the schools um, that was built under the process in Liverpool. Uh, you know, it was an entire building without walls, you know, it's kind of going back to the original schoolrooms. <laughs> um, but we've, we've kind of limited limited success, I would say. And a lot of these buildings that were built in under that building schools for the future with no walls often ended up at great expense having to have walls refitted. Um so look, I don't want to, you know, I think the problem is, is that when you point out the flaws of something like building schools for the future, the problem is people then just think, well, we should just shouldn't fund schools at all. And I think that was almost the reaction you had with the the, 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 the new Labour building schools for the future programme. And then Michael Gove in 2010 came in and said, right, we're just cancelling it. And in a sense, you swung from two extremes. You swung from an extreme where, you know, perhaps there were real issues with building schools for the future and not all those schools were as, you know, well thought through educationally as they could have been. But then you go to the other extreme of uh, and now it feels like the school estate is being really underfunded and it's, you know, got enormous just basic health and safety issues. And, and perhaps, unfortunately, when you get into that cycle, you know, when buildings don't work out, it makes it easier for people to become cynical about them. Um, what's so great about reading Robson is just how for him it almost is like a moral issue that you get these buildings right. So here's what he said about you know why, why is he so motivated to, to think about all this detail and everything and he says for children whose manners morals habits of order cleanliness and punctuality temper love of study and of the school cannot fail to be in no inconsiderable degree affected by the attractive or repulsive situation appearance outdoor convenience and indoor comfort of the place where they are to spend a large part of the most impressionable period of their lives and i think he's right <laughs> and I think that's why it's worth thinking about school buildings and worth trying to get them right and worth trying to spend the money in the right way. I know this might sound controversial after what you've just read, but do we think that the school buildings always make an enormous difference to the educational outcomes? They might make a difference perhaps to the experience of the pupils in the buildings themselves, but in terms of actually getting good results, can we perhaps sort of fetishise buildings and actually mistakenly so 
I think that's a very good argument and one that you've got to seriously consider. And I think a lot of the research and the data on this, it doesn't show a direct line from nice building to great, great educational outcomes. And it's also worth thinking in the last 10 years, as I say, last 10, 15 years, a part of, you know, Michael Gove, who was education minister in 2010, uh, came in and kind of cancelled all that school funding. He also did a lot of interesting innovations on school curriculum, assessment, teaching, brought in free schools. A lot of the free schools that were set up under his um, his sort of time in office are now getting very good results and don't have great buildings. You know, a couple I could mention that regularly come at the top of the league tables. Michaela Community School is in like a refurbed office block, does not have a tremendous building. King's Math School in Lambeth is at kind of the bottom of a 60s tower block and they regularly come at the top of the league tables. So you've got to look around and say there are a lot of schools that don't have top of the range buildings or new buildings or well thought through buildings that have been purpose built that are still getting great results. You could also say maybe we should have nice buildings. You know, maybe it doesn't matter if they lead to good or bad results. Maybe just it's just because we you know want to live in a civilized society. <laughs> it's nice for kids to have nice buildings. <laughs> um, and actually, maybe you don't want to bind yourself into the idea that um, buildings create great outcomes because then if they don't, again, people say, well, we shouldn't have nice buildings. Maybe we should just say it's a nice thing to have. I think ultimately where I land is that I don't think buildings are capable of creating good teaching on their own. But I do think the worst kind are capable of preventing good teaching from happening. Uh, whether that's the private schools of the 1860s that had no sanitation or ventilation or the schools you've got, which I think the Guardian article called wacky warehouses, <laughs> where, you know, they're complete chaos and very noisy and, and very smelly because there's, there's, there's no walls. I think they're probably a necessary but not sufficient condition of good education. And I also think the thing, as with E.R. Robson, we should guard against <laughs> uh, perhaps the newfangled revolutionaries who don't necessarily have that detail about education, don't necessarily understand all, all the nuances of it. And then what do you think, just to finish up, what do you think the board school boy or indeed the board school girl who went to one of these schools in the 1870s what do you think they would think of the schools today so in our exams episode we kind of asked this question we asked it a bit in our episode about miss bus and miss bill would people come back today and just look at us and go you are a fallen people now i do not want to conclude that i'm very optimistic lots of great things about the modern world you know who wants to go live back in the 1870s but you yeah part of you has to wonder <laughs> um you've gone from these brick buildings that have endured and lasted uh, to yeah using materials that are not lasting as i say on the other hand you have better health and safety schools are now more complicated in terms of plumbing and electrics and you know all kinds of uh, technology that they need so it's, it's not as the same task um i think though one thing that's not just the maybe the the, the board school boy or girl from the 1870s but even people now are starting to think is maybe the time it takes for us to build stuff in modern britain has got a little bit out of hand so of course you want to have safeguards in place and you want to make sure that um you know you, you really consider the impact on the environment and the health and safety issues but when it takes such a long time to refurbish the school estate maybe something has gone wrong so maybe the thing we could take from the victorians is yeah a little bit more urgency a little bit more thought about about speed that that's not that wouldn't be a bad thing to think about that um, and as I say, if you think of that, that school board, the London school board in its first 30 years, uh, you know, nearly half a million children who are getting a better education as a result of it or getting an education at all, um, how quickly they move. You know, every time you delay, 
it's kind of another another year, another cohort of, of students who are, are not getting the best deal. So I think that spirit of kind of urgency um, and vigour that those Victorians have, maybe maybe we could do with a, a little bit of that now.